Welcome to Crash Chords Autographs. Today, Matt welcomes Mac Rogers, a playwright hailing from New York City. Founding member of Gideon Productions, Mac Rogers has written the plays Frankenstein Upstairs, Universal Robots, and the Honeycomb Trilogy, including Advance Man, Blast Radius, and Sovereign. He is also the writer of a new 14-episode narrative podcast, Steal the Stars, a serial noir science fiction heist. With Matt, Mac chats about Gideon Media partnering with Tor Labs to bring Steal the Stars to life. They chat about its casting process and how they decided on Ashley Atkinson as the lead. Matt also asks Mac how he got his start as a writer, and what inspired him to dive deep into sci-fi on the stage. And so, from the difficulties in portraying high-quality science fiction in theater without the use of special effects, to the challenges of writing a podcast versus a play, here's presenting Matt Storm and Mac Rogers. And welcome to another episode of Autographs. My guest this week is legendary playwright <laughs> Mac Rogers. Mac, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on the show, Matt. I appreciate it. it uh, it's funny. I say legend, and I'm not kidding, only because I had been hearing about you when I since when I first met Sarah before I ever even saw one of your shows. Because oh, she had always talked about your work, and I think the first show of yours I ever saw was actually Frankenstein Upstairs. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that's, that's, I, don't, I don't meet that many people who that was their first, but okay, that's cool. I'm glad to hear that. Because it's funny, because the honey. honey trilogy I didn't see until you staged it as a trilogy again I right. didn't see it the first time around right. which which is something I want to come back to because sure. I, I, I'm I, and I've talked to other people about it but I'm curious how seeing that individually versus seeing it in a row with a lunch break mm-hmm. how it differs but yeah Frankenstein upstairs was the first one I ever saw and I remember just thinking how I loved how you structured a sci-fi narrative in in play format especially because first like 20 minutes or so it's like oh it's just you know, a modern couple living, fighting, arguing, <laughs> and then the when the twist hits, there's, there's this fun moment in like the middle of it where you go, "Oh, something's wrong," and then everything flips, everything changes, um, and it seems that's kind of your writing style. And a lot of the plays I've seen is you like to kind of throw the audience for a loop and sometimes when they least expect it. Is that something that you always enjoyed in the stories that you read growing up? Yes, I mean, uh, I, I, I very much like popular story forms with sort of recognizable movements, recognizable rise and fall, recognizable tropes. I go, oh, I know I'm into this part of the story now. Um, uh, but then I love... Um, when they are suddenly interestingly subverted in a way. Right. Um, uh, it's, it's a weird contradiction in that I love both formula and surprise, uh, but I think it makes sense when you sort of put the two together and recognize that it's hard to achieve surprise without formula. Right. It's, hard, it's hard to veer from the norm unless there is a norm. So right. uh, uh, for a, quite a long time, since a few years after college, um, virtually every uh, script I've written, whether for theater or for the radio and a couple of unproduced screenplays, um, have definitely been part of a storytelling tradition. Mm-hmm. But I've tried very I've tried very hard every time to take full advantage of the pleasure of those storytelling traditions, like uh, whether it's 
you know, like uh, whether it's an epic science fiction uh, saga like the Honeycomb Trilogy or more of a noir crime story like Steal the Stars. Right. Um, because I do genuinely enjoy those story forms and I want to transmit the, the pleasure inherent in those story forms to the audience. There's a reason those forms have lasted such a long time. They're really durable. They're really good at delivering the entertainment goods uh, again and again. Um, so I definitely want to adhere to a certain degree to the basic structure of the form in each case, to the formula. Uh, but then I try to find interesting ways of veering from it, subverting it, um, uh, finding you know new ways to approach it. With the Honeycomb Trilogy, the, the particular thing there was... Um, uh, I once I knew it was going to be three plays. Right. The next question is, okay, how, how to make this you know work as plays, given that it's a science fiction epic about an alien race taking over the Earth, which that that whole concept is just chock full of things you can't show on stage. Right. So then the next step becomes, okay, um, what what works in theater? What what kinds of plays work for people? And so coming back to the question, then your question. Um, the American Living Room play is, you know, has been just one of the totally durable war horses. Sure. Works again and again. We all kind of know what to expect. When the lights come up and you see an open plan house, you yeah. see like a, the, a bit of the stairs going off to the back of the set. Uh, you, you see the sofa dominating the middle of the proceedings, the the other chairs, everything like that. You you could, you already start auto-filling the play in your head. Right. Okay, I know what's going to happen. We're going to meet the members of the family. There's going to be some problematic intruders of some kind. Right. Uh, it's daytime right now. You can tell from the lighting, but the lights are going to dim. The alcohol is going to come out. Yeah. The secrets are going to start unfurling. Blah blah blah. Uh, so you kind of know. Uh, you kind of know totally what to expect from that. And as you said, with that first play in the Honeycomb trilogy, Advance Man, I followed along with that for a yeah. little while. You see, the lights rub. It's a sunny afternoon. Blah blah. blah. By uh, uh, you, you meet the family. You get to meet the kids by themselves for a minute. Yeah. Then, then there's the big dinner party that the characters have been talking about for a while. Uh, and going into it, you've got these things like the suspicion of infidelity. Mm-hmm. You know, the dad is keeping secrets again. All stuff that you've seen in the living room play before. Then the lighting changes to indicate that it's getting darker. Uh, new intruders are in the house. Alcohol is out. Uh, uh, the family's banished away. And then. And it's like, okay, and I was like, okay, so this is the moment where I'm going to do the first version of the form. Now I'm going to reveal to the audience that what's going on here, the secrets happening here, are not like anything they've ever seen right. in a living room play before. And uh, uh, that scene, that particular scene was key to the whole thing because the scene starts off like a scene you've seen like a million times, dinner party, yeah. family, friends, blah, 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 all these kinds of character-based cross-currents. Uh, that they, that are happening that you've seen in lots of places before until every member of the immediate family uh, has been successfully gotten out of the room. Yeah. And then as soon as they're all out of the room, there's a tonal change, and suddenly these characters start talking about this extraterrestrial conspiracy that they're a part of. And uh, and so it's like, okay, but what? it's exactly what I'm hoping to get, the pleasure of the form and then also the pleasure of the subversion at the same time. Yeah, I mean, well, and so it's funny, going to see the Honeycomb Trilogy, so I'd not seen any of these plays before. I'd already been a fan of your work, and Sarah, I kept asking Sarah, so I've read the synopsis, but I don't quite understand, what's this about? And like, we're <laughs> And I'm and she wouldn't tell me. And then watching that first play, and God bless Sean Williams, it, it, that moment when that happens, when the play just kind of shifts, and his demeanor 
doesn't change. The fact that he the character stays completely the same <laughs> in delivery, I'm just like, what is going on? And it was just it, it it what made me really infatuated with a lot of your work after that is that you do sci-fi in a space where I don't find there's a lot of sci-fi. Like the way the honeycomb trilogy exists and that you have mostly sound cues some very few physical props and scene and and set pieces but for the most part you're using standard furniture it's not like we're not in a spaceship at any point we're not seeing laser guns at mm. any point but it still feels like high sci-fi that's really engrossing was that um a, a a choice just by not having access to that kind of special effects to do that to to keep it more um you know, low, low, low budget or low key in the fact that you're not having these crazy special effects. Yeah, I mean, like the, the um, almost all of my artistic life has been finding creative ways to work around limitations mm -hmm. because of the particular way in which my artistic life developed. I've almost exclusively done self production. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, early on um, when I moved to New York, I you know I started a, a, like a lot of people do. I started a theater company with some friends started putting on plays but the really weird thing is that i am still making art with those exact same friends that's right. very unusual i think what happened was that we unlike a lot of groups of people to do that we hit upon a certain kind of a creative mission that we really wanted to continue doing um and i think part of it came down to recognizing that we all love this kind of storytelling and then so the question was how to make it happen on stage without making it sort of cumbersome and sort of um campy or impossible to right. uh to, to to make manifest something like the honeycomb trilogy that all figuring out how to make that science fiction work on stage that process starts before you write a single line of dialogue before you right. write a single stage direction when i i just i had the basic idea and i described it to my co-producers at all all three plays are going to be in the same living room and um, the earth-shaking events of the story yeah. are all going to take place outside. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Are going to be sort of like, you know, beyond. Um, we'll, we'll know that all incredible things are happening outside the house. And the story will follow how it affects, you know, the people inside the house. Um, and, and so then the question became... Before I wrote anything, I started having just conversations with my co-producers, Sean Williams, Jordana Williams, mm -hmm. uh, uh, my wife, Sandy Yachlin, who was going to be uh, uh, doing the production design. And um, the big question became, how can we make it not ridiculous that everything happens in this room? <laughs> right. How can we make sure that every single scene doesn't start with characters, you know, coming in through the through the front door going, you will not believe the incredible thing <laughs> that we just saw that you guys out in the audience don't get to see, but we saw it and it was awesome. Like, that would be deadly. That mm -hmm. would be unbearable for the audience to watch. Um, so more and more I realized... We need to find a way that, like, the key action can actually happen right in front of them. Right. Uh, uh, not the, not them coming. Oh, there was this amazing alien battle, uh, but but that somehow the battles had need, needed to find a way to happen there. So what naturally evolved out of that was, oh, you know what? This isn't going to be an average American family living through this situation. This is going to be the people that made it happen. Yeah. And then the people who turned the tide later on. So these people are going to be the instrumental figures mm -hmm. in this. Because if that's who they are, then there's a reason things keep happening in this room. Right. Uh, the first play happens in this living room because the dad, the former astronaut, you know, yeah. because he's the one who is behind the whole conspiracy to bring this alien race to the Earth. Right. Uh, in the second play, because 
because that's this house has been designated as the home of where the pregnant women give birth also because um the mom is sick and it's the safest place to keep her you know so it made sense that like it would still be in the same house that we saw in the last play even though it looks really different and then in the third play uh when the the aliens have been beaten back a great deal and ronnie the daughter is now governor cook and she yeah. runs the whole the whole colony and she's got a throne and everything like that and it's sort of like you know she's the godfather now like uh, <laughs> uh that like the, the question is okay now why are we in the house this time so okay well now the house has a new purpose now the house is a courtroom now right. the house is where sort of the reconciliation trials are happening right and um uh and that added a bit of like kind of like uh, when we were trying to justify why it would be happening there, me and Jordan and Sean sort of looked at each other at one point. We're like, "Oh my God, that's so sad." If she's, if she she's basically reconquered the world. Right. She's the biggest war hero in the world, and she's basically now back every single day, sitting through endless hours of business in the house she grew up in, the house she always dreamed of escaping right. when she was a teenager before <laughs> the invasion happens. Like. That is incredibly sad, and that gives just that gives you a piece of emotional heft you get before anyone even speaks. Right, lights the come minute. up. There's Ronnie on her throne in the house she grew up in, and if you saw Advancement, if you saw the first play, you remember how bad she wanted to move out. Right, um, things like that are gold when you can get that. Uh, when you, when you can when you can find certain moments that are just that that have emotional heft before you even so once that happens like okay then let's make sure all the important science fiction moments happen here let's make sure the transmitter that brings the aliens happens in this room right let's make sure that the that in the second play the discovery of the terrible weapon with the terrible cost that can be used against them is discovered in this room Mm -hmm. let's use this room as the place where the where the suicide bomb recruits Mm -hmm. are happen and then in the third play where the the initially the trial of the greatest war criminal world the son the brother abby and then of course the most the biggest moral choice the human race ever has to make both of those things happen in this living room that's the way to make the science fiction element work on stage is to find a way to turn it into dynamic action that happens right in front of the audience mm-hmm. um and so in a play form if you can't compete with the special effects then that means you what, what you need to do is express the science fiction as a series of decisions yeah decisions that are made in real time right in front of the audience uh, uh, with no mercy, no margin mm-hmm. for error, and you know, and the audience right there with you. Oh my God, what would you do? Um, uh, so you basically turn you turn science fiction from something that's expressed through spectacle into something that is based into something that is expressed through decision. Mm-hmm. And decision, the great thing about that is decision automatically reveals character. Decision is a, is an instrument of revealing character. So yeah. you get both the theater aspect and the science fiction aspect. Yeah, it, and I think I I think. Also, for me, if I had to watch Advance Man and then wait for the others, like I would have gone crazy. The fact that I could watch them all in a row. Now, you say that it was once you figured out it was a trilogy. Was there a point during the process of Advance Man that it wasn't a trilogy yet? That it had only been the one player? Or did you always, from the beginning, kind of figure this will be a trilogy? By the time I was writing Advance Man, I knew it was a trilogy. trilogy. Um, early on, I had an idea for a play that was essentially Blast Radius, or that was essentially the, the main imagery of Blast Radius. Like, basically, I had this I, I had this image in my head of, like, an American family in a really nice suburban home. And for the first ten minutes or so of the play, you see the mom, dad, the kids, whatever. Kids are teenagers. Whatever, they, like, they're moving around. You, you kind of... Um, you've seen this play a million times 
times before, you can see that there's an underlying tension with the family, which you don't know exactly right. what it is. The, the view outside the window is a little weird, but maybe yeah. you don't think about it that much. And then the mom serves like lunch or dinner to the family and it's these really weird icky slimy vegetables <laughs> and you're going what the hell is going on and then the idea is that it would gradually be revealed that they were gotcha. living under extraterrestrial occupation uh and part of the original idea was i'd seen some extraordinary puppets in a play um uh, uh, uh in a play at a, at a brooklyn Brooklyn College, I think it was, um, and I was like, I thought it, at the time, I was like, I want to use puppets to depict extraterrestrials mm-hmm. in a play. Um, now, as I continued to develop the story, as I go, as I started to figure out who that family is and what they were doing in the house, blah blah. blah um, the more the story kind of kept expanding in both directions, right. the more I realized it was going to have to be more than one play, or otherwise it was going to be an unbearably long single play. And then it finally dawned on me that it was a trilogy, that there was the before the during, before the occupation, during the occupation, after, after. the occupation. Yeah. Um, uh, so there was, ne- Advance Man never existed by itself in my imagination. By the time I started writing it, I knew that it was a trilogy, but it was a weird experience because, as you say, in 2012, we produced the plays sequentially, January, March, and June. Mm -hmm. In 2015, we produced them in repertory where we did one play per weeknight, and then on Saturdays and Sundays, we did all-day-long marathons. Um, So it was a whole different story in how that first play was received in one year or another because in 2012, basically nobody knew what we were up to. They knew that it was the we marketed it as advanced. Dance Man, part one of the Honeycomb trilogy. So they knew there was some kind of a trilogy thing going on. But like when it got to the end and the play actually ended with aliens taking over the earth, people were completely flipping out. (laughs) There's aliens in this book? What the hell? Yeah. Um, And and it was was kind of an amazing sort of shock. And and you had a good, um, you had a good. Amount of it sounds like you had a good amount of information going right. in when you saw it in 2015. We did have a little bit of a struggle with the first play in 2015 because um, the whole approach to marketing the show was different. We were marketing the entire trilogy in 2015, so we kind of had to say trilogy of plays about extraterrestrial invasion. Right, you had to give up that ghost a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So, a part of the problem with Advanced Man was we struggled with the audience problem of when are we getting to the aliens? You know? Right, which we didn't have in in 20. 12, which is which is difficult because the aliens are sort of the most marketable aspect of the right. play, and to be sure, it's an important part of the play, um, and, and the most different thing. The thing you know, that if, if we put it out in theater listings, people are like, "Oh, I haven't seen that before." Right. Um, but part of the problem is you have you do have to pay close attention to the character dynamics of the of advancement in the first part of the Honeycomb trilogy because the spine of the play really is about this family yep. and about the baggage passed down through generations. Um, and it really was there was a lot of heavy inspiration drawn from Greek tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sins of one generation live on into the next in a yeah. lot of ways. And there's a lot of conversations in the first play that pay, that pay off in the third mm-hmm. in a big way. So probably the people, and I don't want to you know make anyone feel bad who might hear this and who saw the plays at different times. Right. Um, uh, because I, I do hope that we gave everyone a satisfactory experience. We I think it's all it. satisfactory. I think it's just different experiences. Because yeah. it's how it's presented to you, you know. And you can only take... X amount out of it based on how you're you're presented with it. Just like for me, like I saw Ghostbusters. I never saw Ghostbusters in the theaters. I was a little too young for that, though. Right, right, right. But I did get to see it in theaters later on. I watched it all my life on DVD, and sure. then I saw it in theaters later in life. I went, oh, it's a different movie now because you're <laughs> seeing it with other people. There are laugh. There are points where laughs happen. That you go, oh. 
I totally missed that cue, or I didn't think that was funny before. And it's the same thing, I think, with theaters. Depending on how you see it, how your mood is, when you're seeing it, where you're seeing it, can change how you interact with it. Because the people who came, the people who saw the marathons, they did have an utterly unique experience. Like I talked to, I talked, I talked to lots and lots of people who saw the Honeycomb trilogy over 2012 and 2015, and I, you know, I got a lot of feedback about it. And but there was definitely something unique about people who showed up at two in the afternoon to see Advance Man, and they see the scene where. Uh, the dad, Bill, teaches his yeah. daughter, Ronnie, how to throw a punch and knock somebody out. He says, do you know how, yeah. to, and he's, you know how to knock somebody out? And they're just in the living room playing around, but he's got a serious agenda underneath it. Then many hours later, as it's like, it's, it's, we're, we're zooming in on like 1030, yeah. and the, as the third play, 1030 p.m. is the third play, he's got coming to a conclusion, and Ronnie has to... Ronnie, Ronnie's there with the new governor, and then yeah. she's and she has to go along with executing her brother, or that's what the new governor thinks she's going to do. And she says to the Xander, the new governor, she uh, and she, you know, he, he he can't quite bring himself to kill Abby while Abby's conscious and looking at him. Yeah. And she says, "Do you know how to knock somebody out?" And uh, and she repeats the exact same words Bill said back at yeah. the audience's members would have seen it about two fifteen that afternoon. Yeah. Uh, um, and she ends up using that advice to actually knock Xander out and save save her brother's life um, the emotional impact for, of that on people who had showed up at two yeah. and saw it that same day there was definitely something unique about that there sure. was definitely people walking like there were a couple of nights when she says to him, "Do you?" She says to the governor, "Do you know how to knock somebody out?" Where I heard like kind of like low little sobs in the audience. Yeah, yeah. They were seeing the, the this sort of generational thing pay off and for good and ill in mm-hmm. all kinds of ways. It was like this sudden emotional payoff, um, and uh, uh, it, it was the whole big reason why we brought the show back in 2015. We did not lightly make the decision to bring the sure. Honeycomb trilogy. My God, it damn near killed us the first time, <laughs> and we knew it was going to be two or three times as hard the second time uh, and I've never experienced anything in my life like producing that show. it was all we did I mean, yeah. we, we went to our jobs for money and then yeah. we all we did was we do the and, you know whenever we could sneak in a little work on the trilogy of those jobs we did that too yeah. so like, all we did we joked that um we joked that our weekdays became our new weekends because because <laughs> you weren't working on the, the, the Saturday and Sunday was when we did the marathons of the yeah. show and that was an unholy holy amount of work I'm sure like you know noon first show was at two you know get everything in place um, the changeovers between the shows because the whole living room had to be changed, to change yeah. to reflect you know what had happened to it uh, to change the, 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 the world outside uh, the, the changeovers were intricate and had to be done in a really tight time frame then we had to get like get the dinners ready. We had to set up the dinner table for, yeah. for people who were going to have dinner yeah. between the second and third play. Uh, meanwhile, downstairs we were getting casts in and out. We were uh, a team of three stage managers was keeping track of an extraordinary number of props. We had there was box office to run. There was press to greet. There was all yeah. these different. Uh, uh, um, we did it at the Judson Church. There was uh, a tremendous amount of personnel and um, and uh, on Sundays we had to make sure that we had somebody to like sort of sh- the parishioners as they were coming down from the right. service. So it was an extraordinary number of moving parts. Saturday and Sunday were so much more stressful than our day jobs yeah. that during the run of that show we basically 
we treated going back to our day jobs like the weekend. <laughs> to go back to work and right. do some work on a laptop right. was like sleeping in. It was an incredibly difficult thing. It was not, and the only reason that we thought it was worth putting ourselves through that was to create the opportunity for the repertory experience for people to be able to see the plays that close together. Yeah. And for those who were up for it... Um, to see them all in one day. Now, right. That's not an easy sit. We didn't expect that many people to take advantage of it. That yeah. is why we sold a la carte tickets to the individual plays on Saturdays and Sundays anyway. Right. But we were completely wrong. We sold by far the most tickets on the to weekends. the marathons. Yeah. Uh, people buying package deals. Uh, that was by far the most popular ticket. I think because we got around, it was a unique emotional experience of seeing it that way. Right. Well, yeah, and for sure that's what Sarah said to me. As someone who'd only seen, at that point, I think just Frankenstein upstairs, was like, with Mac Rogers, you liked his work, and this is a trilogy, we're going to do the marathon on Saturday. Mm-hmm. I'm like, marathon of plays? All right, <laughs> I guess. But And after Advancement, I was like, I like a chomping at the bit for the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Like, it was just, it's unlike any other theater experience I've ever had. Oh, thank you. And so that was really incredible to me. But let's move on to the current thing that you're working on that's been making a lot of headlines and some waves, at least in my Twitter feed, if mm-hmm. not everywhere else, um, which is Steal the Stars. Yeah. Because I feel like anyone who's listening to hear you talk about that will kill me if I don't bring it up. <laughs> um, so Steal the Stars is unique to me as someone who's been podcasting for a long time and has only, you know, radio shows have been around forever and narrative radio has been around forever. But narrative podcasts are relatively recent in in mass consumption. Sure. And so this idea to create this heist sci-fi story that's both a book and a, a podcast, a radio show... How does that come to be? Because you're partnered with Tor Books, right? And was it a book first, or was it written as a as a podcast first? Written as a podcast first, like uh, basically, uh, uh, there were two editors from Tor, Jen Gunnels and Marco Palmieri. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jen Gunnels has been coming to see Gideon uh, science fiction plays for many years. I think going back to the first Honeycomb, um, and uh, and she brought Marco along, and Marco uh, to the Honeycomb trilogy. Marco liked that as well, um, and then he saw the, our, our remounting of Universal Robots the mm-hmm. next year. And so Jen and Marco, uh, and they and they you know they followed that I was that I had gotten into writing podcast drama, right. not with Gideon, but I um, I was hired twice by Panoply as part of a co-production with GE to uh, create this thing, GE Podcast Theater, mm-hmm. uh, to have these like science fiction um, thriller miniseries that I uh, the message and like yep. after that I did for them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, uh, and I, I those were both really great experiences, but. I wanted to be able to kind of, you know, create some of my own sort of homegrown audio drama. And, you know, my longtime colleague, Sean Williams, who we've uh, uh, already talked about a little bit, uh, has, uh, you know, had a whole career uh, uh, before, you know, doing theater stuff of like of producing in the studio uh, uh, children's educational music. Like he'd been doing producing uh, uh, with audio uh, and editing with audio for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of expertise in that. And I said, how hard would it be for us to make? audio dramas you could not hard at all mm-hmm. um uh but the uh, th- we initially thought we were going to have to start with some really small really homemade uh uh stuff um but as it happened the tour people knew that we were planning to start to do this and um 
and they reach out they reach out to us because Tor wanted to get into the podcast space and they mm-hmm. wanted to experiment with new kinds of publishing. Um, so the Tor Labs imprint was created by uh, Jen and Marco as this as a new method of, ex- of experimental publishing in multiple media. Right. The idea was uh, uh, they would hire us to uh, you know write and produce the podcast and then um, they would do a novelization of it along. Now, um, now they they originally said to me, and as like we we could hire you to do the podcast and the novelization, um, or if not, you know we can have one of our authors do the novelization. Uh, I I knew I. I, I turned down the novelization for two reasons. I, number one, I knew I wouldn't have the time. and It was going to be all I could do to get the script done. Right. Um, uh, I, they, it was going to be a 14-part science fiction. It was like really intricately plotted science fiction. So I was going to take everything I had to write that. Secondly, I don't really have a fiction voice. I mean, maybe at some yeah. point in my life I'll try I'll experiment with that. But um, I don't have a strong sense of what goes in between the lines of dialogue. You know? <laughs> um, but Nat Cassidy, who uh, I've known for a number of years, been a colleague of mine for a number of years, I've known him as both an actor and a writer. I know he's written some fiction, and he was working with us in the project because he's also uh, done a lot of work with, with audio. He's very mm-hmm. comfortable with that and uh, was interested in developing audio drama projects alongside us. Um, uh, we said, you know, do you, uh, you know, I said, do, do you want to crack at the novelization? And he said, actually, yeah. He said, let me, um, so Tor, Tor, he went to Tor and said, would you consider me? And they said, well, you have to write some audition chapters. So he did. Um, uh, as I was writing, um, I'd already written a part one. We'd already mm-hmm. done a part one, like, homemade pilot to show them what it would be like. Right. Um, so he wrote a couple chapters based on that, and he, and he got the job from that. So the process was kind of crazy. Like, uh, Tor came to us with this offer in mid-March, mm-hmm. and they wanted the first episode to go out the first Wednesday of August. So we knew it was going to be a dead run. Um, and and basically, as I finished rough drafts of episodes, I emailed them to Sean and Jordana and Nat mm-hmm. and uh, Marco and Jen separately. And um, uh, Nat just immediately started writing chapters based on them. He just immediately, wow. knowing knowing that he was going to have to like unpick some of those scenes and rewrite later right. because I was going to be doing another pass at the scripts. The scripts are going to need, you know, it was, the scripts are going to need a revision. Plus, there's always, when you're in the studio recording, you find a million things that are wrong. You find Sure. And rewrites we're going to do. And every single time I found something wrong, there was always this little guilt pang because it was like, eh, okay, I need to fix that. That doesn't work. And for me, that might mean like I need to fix three pages of dialogue. For Nat, that means he's got like, to fix like, you know, 10 to 20 pages of right. prose. Uh, but uh, uh, he works really fast, Nat yeah. Cassidy. He's got an extraordinary amount of energy. Uh, energy I can't fathom, really. Yeah. Um, during this process, he wrote the novelization along with me writing the scripts. He played the character of Lloyd yep. uh, uh, on the podcast, and he attended nearly every recording and was another set of ears on the headphones at nearly every recording session. Wow. Um, uh, he has a very keen set of ears. He was very keen to like, oh, that line's a little bit wrong. Ooh, we had a wobble in that line. We had a phantom sound in that line, whatever. Or he would catch plot uh, uh he would catch plot problems. It's super helpful. There is no dramaturg in this world like someone who's writing a novelization of your script right. at the same time. Right. Like he'd be writing to me going, I'm struggling with this chapter because I'm not, I don't know if I totally understand your goals with these three pages here. And I would look at the three pages and be like, no, no, it's... I just screwed up. I just screwed up. 
I'm going to have to rewrite that, which means you're going to have to rewrite your thing also. So it was a totally unique process. But, um, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm close to the end of reading the very final draft of the book. I held off um, to like I could read the paperback in my right, hands. Right, sure. Oh, my God. It was so amazing to sit in a coffee shop. Uh, uh, I actually have it in my, in my backpack. Um, like they've given us some advanced copies. Obviously, it's not on sale yet. Right, uh, right. Uh, not quite yet. Until, uh, won't come out until, um, uh, may, uh, depending on when this podcast comes it might be out when people are listening to this, but it's coming out November 7th. They, they, okay. Uh, so around they, the time this comes up, it'll, it'll be coming out. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Uh, so all of that kind of had to happen between mid-March and uh, early August. So... Everything kind of had to happen at the same time. Wow. I had to get through those first 14 episodes as fast as I could, um, you know, and I'm a very slow writer. Um, um, I drive people crazy. I'm such a slow writer. But, you know, as each episode, basically whenever I handed them a script with a character that had to been, hadn't been seen before, yeah. Jordana had to think, okay, who might be good casting for this? So were you involved in the casting process at all, or was it just Jordana casting? She uh, well, um, she and I always uh, uh, consult with one another. I mean, this was a bit of a different deal than with plays that we've had going on for a long time. And Jordana and I have basically sort of had this agreement that we sort of honed over the first couple of years that we were working together. Um, um, we're basically, we both have a lot of input into what the other does. Uh, but ultimately, I get to make the final call on everything related to the script. Mm-hmm. And Jordana gets to make the final call on everything related to uh, uh, casting, blocking, right. design, you know, uh, uh, you know, unifying the design decisions, you know. Right. Um, and so... We'll have endless quarrels about the script. We'll have endless quarrels about a casting decision. But at a certain point, like those quarrels could go on indefinitely if one person wasn't empowered to be the (laughs) one to. Generally, we have consensus on most stuff. Like, I don't want to make it sound like we disagree on everything. uh, It's actually not true. The fact that we we work together so easily that we actually agree on most things. But when we disagree, we disagree and we we go at it for a while. And the, the, the thing is, that argument could go on indefinitely if one of us wasn't empowered at a certain point to say, I've made my decision. Right. And we've both done that to each other. I've done that about script things she didn't agree with. Uh, she's done that about casting or staging decisions that I didn't agree with. At a certain point, she would, you know, she, she'll look at me and say, this is my artistic vision. I've settled on this. I believe it's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, it took a couple of years for us to kind of find a comfortable shape for that. But at a certain point, I look at it and go, all right, you know what? That is that, you know, that that's right. That's your call. That's the bargain we've made. Uh, we both have to live with a few things that we aren't totally happy with because otherwise it would be chaos. It would never get done. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the, the only reason it works at all is that we agree on the vast majority of things. Right, sure. But that dissatisfaction is the only way that a... a process can happen so on steel the, the the difference with steel the stars was and is, is um uh was a different challenge is because sean was the producer as he always was in the plays but producer means a different thing on audio sure producer is a much more hands-on artistic thing mm-hmm. and sean had the many years of background in how audio works that neither jordana nor i did so there would be scenes and there were moments in working with the actors where he actually had to come in and say like jordana i'm going to gonna straight up tell you it's got to be like this i know because i know how we're going to need to stitch it together later right. neither jordana nor i have that sense for yet hopefully we'll develop it over years we're used to rehearsing and then putting up a play which is a continuous analog you know piece of sure. real-time thing uh, uh and um we don't have that instinct for you need to assemble the right bits and pieces so that they'll go together later. Uh, but as far as casting went, 
we that was the one part of it that we were able to handle in the same way that we handle uh, our plays in the sense that she consulted with me. Um, she gave me a lot of room to talk over the casting decisions with her. Uh, but then she got, you know, she would make the final call on mm-hmm. uh, uh, on all of the casting decisions. Um, and uh, I, but, but in this one, I think I don't I, actually on this one. I, I don't think we uh, I think we were pretty much co-set across the board. Actually, <laughs> now that I'm racking my brains, I can't think of a of a disagreement along those lines. Um, uh we definitely, you know, went back and forth on script stuff a good sure. deal. Um, but uh, but we, we, the fact is, we over the years, we've built up a, a large group of actors that we really like, you know, working with. And we're able to bring, you know, a lot of them into this process. Well, yeah, that's something that was fun for me as a fan of your previous pl- stage plays. Is there are a lot of familiar voices that have turned up in other things I've seen that I'm mm-hmm. like, I know these voices. Right, right, you right. Know, um, and like for for sure, Abe Goldfarb, who I've heard and seen in many stuff. Oh yeah. To see him turn up his trip, which if there's anyone who's never, I've never heard someone who plays an asshole better than <laughs> Abe Goldfarb. I love him as Trip. He's so great. <laughs> Having just listened to episode twelve, and no spoilers in case you're not caught up yet. Although all fourteen are out by the time this airs. He probably had one of his most impassioned moments in episode twelve, <laughs> and so it was cool to hear. But. All of that said, and all of the voices that I recognize from previous plays, there's one that I don't, which is Ashley Atkinson, who right. I am friendly with, um, Sarah has known, and I've seen in many other works. What Was she always your choice for Dak, or did you guys kind of, were there a few different people, and how did you guys kind of hone in on Dak? Was Dak always, I assume that Dak was always a woman and Matt was always a guy, and yeah. that, that was always the dynamic, but how did you guys arrive at Ashley? Because she's phenomenal in mm-hmm. the lead. Um, was that just kind of the person that you were always looking for to cast in that lead? Well, because of the odd way that the project came together, like um, <laughs> I've always been such a slow writer, and I've always had to like write things in, in such a dead heat. With like, the, the, there's never been a situation. There's, it, I, it's very rare that I experience a situation where I just complete a script, hand it over to collaborators, and then the then the conversation about casting begins. <laughs> it was all usually simultaneous. There, there's all kinds of like craziness, like a re- developmental readings of bits and bobs of the play, you know. And like a lot of times, there'll be a thing where like I'll get some actors together, Rick, read three scenes, and one actor will be so indelible, it's like, oh god, it's got to be that person. The rest of the writing is right. tailored to that voice or whatever. And a lot of times when I'm writing play scripts over the last several, since I started to develop a core of actors that I really like, you know, coming back to a lot of times when I write a play I'll find that I about a third of the characters I write for a specific actor voice and right. then the other two thirds you like um uh, you know, I try to keep open, you know, so like, you know, you, you always want to work with people that you trust and really are comfortable working with. And you also want to bring in new people as well. Sure, of course. You want to you, you want to make sure that you that there's always sort of an influx of new ideas, new voices in the room. Um, but in in, in, um, in this particular case, I had written uh, a pilot episode just because um, Gideon Media, the, the, the offshoot of Gideon Productions, had put this uh, uh, this together. Uh, we just had started developing radio scripts like we right. didn't have any green lights that tour wasn't in the picture yet we hadn't but we all just we wanted to have some pitches and some pilot scripts ready in case you know we could go out to people who might be able to do the funding so i had written a pilot episode of steal the stars right um and then when the conversations with tour started getting more serious sean was like hey let's just make a quick and dirty pilot let's just make uh 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 you know just at the house let's Mm -hmm. just 
you know, so it won't be the greatest or whatever, but we'll get some actors together and uh, we'll just use the microphones that I happen to already have and let's just see what happens. Um, and uh, Jordana's like, Jordana had directed Ashley Atkinson in a Fringe show uh, several years ago. Uh, oh, gosh, I think it was called The Particulars, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, along with Brian Silliman, who's also in Steal the Stars and was, mm-hmm. was in Advanced Man in the Honeycomb Trilogy. Um, so they knew each other, were very friend, had had a very happy uh, artistic collaboration on The Particulars. So she was like, you know, I bet we can, she's like, we can't get Ashley for a play. We can't get Ashley for the six weeks for a play. Right. But we could, because she's Ashley's an actor in a lot of demand. Right. But she's like, I bet we can get her for, you know, five hours to record right. a pilot. And and uh, she really wanted to do it. She gave it to the pilot. And then, uh, so... And then as soon as I heard her voice yeah, on the like, quick perfect. and dirty pilot, they, that which did not, which is not the episode one you hear in the air right. when we recorded it. Um, I was like, oh my God, that's it. Like that is exactly what Dakota Prentice sounds like. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think in that earlier draft, it was, she might've been like a bit more of a generically written character. Mm-hmm. But once I heard Ashley Atkinson do it, I it was like turning key in a lock. I knew how to write every other line of dialogue yeah. for Dak for the whole rest of the 14 episodes. Like every, all I had to do was, and okay. And it's not, it, it's not like what would Ashley do because Ashley, I guess in Dakota Prentice are very different people. Sure. And I don't know Ashley well enough. I know her better now in the project, but I don't know Ashley well enough to write a character based on Ashley Atkinson. <laughs> but I know, but as soon as I heard all, as soon as I heard her do that thing, I could think on the on the quick and dirty pilot. I was yeah. like, "What would that character say in this situation?" Right, and it was like it was an enormous muse. It was an enormous creative influx of. As just as I was so as I was typing, nearly every Dak line just occurred naturally. I just I just knew exactly how she talked. I knew exactly what situation she was comfortable in mm-hmm. and what kind of situation she was uncomfortable in. Um, there was a desire on my part from a very early on to kind of want to, I always kind of want to flip the script on the previous thing I wrote. Right. Uh, the previous, um, my previous audio project had been a 10 part science fiction thriller series called Life After, right. where the main character was um, a man. Who a man named Ross who um, quickly finds himself out of his depth in a thriller story, basically mm-hmm. essentially an espionage story where he's sort of forced to work both sides of a double agent type situation, mm-hmm. but with no spy skills whatsoever. <laughs> My whole idea with that story was let's have our let's have our main character be really bad at being in a thriller. Right. Let's uh, uh, let's like I, I wanted to make a, this guy could die at any moment because he can't function in a thriller. <laughs> any episode he survives is pure luck. Uh, <laughs> Uh, 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 and then we see him develop a bit of resourcefulness toward the end. Sure. Uh, but this one, I was like, I'm going to go completely the other way. I, uh, instead of like, you know, kind of a frightened novice, I want to have a seasoned professional, seasoned actually to the point of being a little bit burned out. Yeah. Uh, someone who really knows how to handle herself in just about every situation. And that was my rule for the script. Whatever the situation, she knows what to do except... Uh, uh, with falling head over heels in love, right? Uh, like I even went to the point like I wanted to make it clear that that she's had she's definitely had a sex life. She's had boyfriends. Like she's had a good time in her life. Uh, uh, it's not that she's you know in any way sort of like virginal or a wallflower or anything like that what she doesn't have any experience with though is falling deliriously head over heels in mm-hmm. love and that's a situation that she's massively uncomfortable with yeah and you know it's like the only way uh 
that she can sort of express that love is by basically using all of her skill to pull off an extraordinary uh, 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 endeavor, an extraordinary caper. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and so like the, uh, so early on, like I, I, um, as soon as I knew it was going to be a noir story, I was like, I'd really like to have a woman be the lead because you never right. see that. There's a there's a standard issue. There's a standard issue man who is, you know, the drifter or, you know, the guy who's unhappy in his marriage. Right. Whatever. They meet a beautiful woman. Um, maybe she's on the run for the law. Maybe she's yeah. got like a really mean, scary husband. Whatever it is. Right. Uh, uh, but she, she's very beautiful. She's the object of desire. And you totally can't tell if she's like really on the man's side or not. It's like, I want to flip the script and I'm going to have that be a woman I, I particularly I, I was very keen on the idea of having like a woman an older woman and a younger man mm -hmm. be the leads because I like I, there's certain things that I just I just hate how they're depicted in pop culture mm -hmm. totally ordinary things are, de are depicted as if they're really weird and freakish in pop right. culture like older women with younger men literally happens every day there's a zillion couples across the world where the woman is some years older than the man um but in pop culture, that's such a no-no in pop culture that it's treated as freakish. Yeah. And like things like these sort of like the rise of terms like cougar come along. Yeah. Uh, where, where, it's, where you're like, why is there suddenly this exotic term for a thing that literally happens all the time? The time, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, was, I wanted it to be a situation where I wanted to write it very carefully in such a way that the script makes clear that Dak is... Dex always had a robust sex life. She's yeah. had she's had fun. Guys are totally into her. Very first scene in the whole story yeah. is a guy hitting on her at a bar, blah blah. And that that Matt is totally into her, um, but she has these insecurities, particularly about falling in love. I wanted to draw a sharp distinction between the insecurities that exist in her mind yeah. and how the rest of the world looks at her. And I want I wanted to totally normalize this situation from sure. the outside, like Matt is is into her uh and uh, uh it's a, and it's in a, and it's a very uncomplicated thing and it's not a joke i, like, I yeah. really didn't want it to be a punchline in any kind of a way well what i really enjoyed about that relationship too is that the only punchline was kind of that like it's made clear that matt is attractive he's a handsome man yeah. and then he's he's definitely gotten by on his he's definitely skilled uh -huh. but he's also gotten by on his looks in moments yeah. which is not a trope that's usually attributed to men that's mm -hmm. always like oh a woman can get by on her looks and so i like the flip on that too that you know there are offshoot comments from other cast members saying mm -hmm. you know about him being this attractive man that might have gotten away with a thing or two because mm -hmm. of it and i think that's really fascinating i mean the funny thing to me about listening to this show is that it took me less than half an episode to just feel comfortable sitting in the world. I think it was, you know, about halfway through the first episode where I got used to Dax's narrating voice. Because yeah. at first I was like, wait, is she narrating or is, she, is there dialogue? But then my ears honed in on it and right. I could absolutely tell the difference mm -hmm. for the rest of the, the run. And uh, being at episode 12, I love those fourth wall breaking moments. Some of my favorite shows on TV have a character that steps forward out of the moment. Um, I don't know if you ever saw, um, what was it called? House of Lies, which is a Don Cheadle TV show on Showtime. I've seen clips of it. But I know, yeah, and yeah. so he would always step out of the narrative and freeze things around him to describe what's going on. And there's a, it, there's a little bit of a feeling of that with Dak as well as it kind of being a voiceover as the things are happening. Oh, yeah. Like in the most recent episode I listened to with her telling Matt her plan 
and she's talking about telling him the plan while you hear the audio low behind it yeah. of her telling the plan. Yeah. Which I love that because it's clearly her stepping out of herself uh-huh. to comment on it, which I always love moments like that. Well, one, one little funny little production note is like at some point, like very late in the process, we recorded absolutely everything. Every line, the script, yeah. every whatever. But at some point, Sean was like, oh my God, dude, we, we, we got to get Ashley back. We didn't. We didn't record her. In the script, there's the narration with her saying, oh, yeah. I told him the whole plan while Moss watched us from right. across the alien, watched us right. from across the truck. And um, and he was like, we don't have any Ashley telling him the plan. <laughs> uh, there were a couple lines that were that we didn't like that we wanted uh, some narration lines we wanted to rewrite. So we, we, were, we actually we brought Ashley back in for a day like some time after we'd recorded everything else. Yeah. Um, uh, we brought her back from day to like uh, pick up a bunch of lines that um, that we wanted to fix along the way, um, um, and then uh, and then we had her. We had set up the mic and so uh, to mimic how that scene was before because we needed her. And I actually just wrote a speech that hadn't existed in the script before. I was like, okay, how would she be telling this story to him? And that was one of the very right. last things we recorded because we had to layer it in under the. I made a similar mistake on Life After where there's a very tender scene between two characters while they're watching a clip of wrestling, of professional wrestling, and we were deep into the recording process because they were the, the, the one character was reminiscing on how her deceased wife um, right. had been a big fan of professional wrestling and we were deep into the recording process when a couple of the Panoply producers came up to me and said Mac we can't we can't just put a WWE clip on we need show. to actually we need to create our own wrestling <laughs> yeah. like that's because they, they own that yeah I was like oh my god so like while they were recording other stuff I was huddled with my laptop watching WWE clips yeah. trying to like figure out how to one thing I loved about the WWE clips I'll be fast with this is like I loved how the announcers were always pretending to be horrified by what always the wrestlers were doing. constantly <laughs> like all the time when some, I mean some crazy things would happen in wrestling because it was scripted that way and they were always cool but every time it was Either JR or Jerry the King Waller or whoever else, you're like, oh my God, and just freaking out. I can't believe, like, yeah, I mean, of course they can believe it's happening. That's what they're, that's what they're, they're in the business for, of. Yeah. Yeah. But they were like, I saw one clip where they were sort of imploring the wrestler to not do the thing he was about to do. <laughs> and I mean, then he does it, and they're yeah. still shocked. Oh, I can't, you know, he didn't listen to it. Yeah, I was like, so I would just, oh, and so I wrote that, and uh, one of the producers found it just a, um, just a couple of friends where they weren't even actors. Uh, one of them was a film critic who'd always wanted. He's like, he was like, oh, this is my dream to do professional wrestling. And now so we brought them in. The very last thing we recorded <laughs> for Life After was just a couple of guys coming in yelling those uh, those wrestling things into it. We and we had, we were just all laughing till tears came out of our eyes. We were just coming down from how difficult of a project it had mm-hmm. been, you know. Uh, uh, and these guys were just like, and, and it, instead of like all what we'd been doing for weeks of let's get these the emotion of these lines very carefully calibrated mm-hmm. blah 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 we just we those guys just just go for it just yeah. go for it there's no nuance in how these announcers do it on the shows and then also we knew it was going to be mixed to be de- underneath a scene where a tender emotional moment was the predominant thing in the sound mix sure um but yes yeah, so with, with that moment um but what you're talking about with life after that that was that was a significant challenge uh, it was something that i picked up off on off a technique that i kind of developed with life after mm. uh because both life after and steal the stars both share a strong um, noir flavor. Mm-hmm. They are both very much about people trying to pull off illicit maneuvers while they're surrounded on all sides by people who would really come down hard on them if they knew about it. And one thing I've always loved about the noir tradition is that hard-boiled narrator. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, just always like, 
I should have known the minute that dame walked into my office that right. she was trouble. Right. And there's like that sort of like, um, you know, uh, uh, embittered, you know, seen it all, uh, a hardball n- narrator thing. Um, and that was originally my idea for how the life after narration was going to work. But as we as we worked on it, I developed it with John Dryden, the wonderful director from the UK who had uh, directed it. Um, what we found that we wanted was like the past tense uh, that this is how I ended up like this. Yeah, we found that a little deadening. We found that a little. Um, uh, we found that that kind of kept reframing the story as like. Um, uh, as, as kind of a fait accompli, as kind of something that is. Uh, and uh, so I started experimenting with like treating it as almost like an in the moment monologue. It's mm-hmm. like I started writing those narration lines in the present tense. I had them basically reacting. I kept them short. I had them dip in and out of the dialogue mm-hmm. like it was a dance. The narr- the idea was that uh, John Dryden said the, the narration should dance in and out of the dialogue. Um, and like when, so with Seal the Stars, when I came to that and I knew it was a similar thing, I was like, um, I was like, okay, I want to bring the narration back. I want to do that technique again. Um, it, it, you know, I want to, I want to do the same thing with of, of of being of the whole show is from the point of view of a single character. Right. I, like if I'm already, I'm already developing future scripts that would not be using that technique that have multiple main characters, but I want to keep that thing. I wanted it to be all Dax's journey, and I went even way further with that. I wrote a lot more of it, but um, I always wanted it to be present tense. I wanted it to feel like that narration thing is like happening right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, we talked about it a lot with Ashley. Like Ashley really wanted to get the. T- she's such a meticulous actor, mm-hmm. and she wanted to get the tone of it exactly right. But I think what we eventually settled on, I think Joanna might have come up with this, was the thing of like, like you've got this confidant who's always just right next to you the whole time, yeah. like this imaginary best friend who you can tell everything to. Yeah, you're gonna be a big part of of Dax's world is that she can't confide in anyone. Right, and, and so like, she's confiding in the audience essentially yeah the audience is his buddy when some startling thing happens she can go oh my god did you see that thing that just happened that thing that's happened and it was constantly like the narration needs to feel like this is happening right now sure not this happened in the past and this is why I ended up in this jail cell that's <laughs> not a spoiler um, uh, 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 there's the, the, the it was it's uh, but more like uh, or how I ended up floating in this pool like in Sunset Boulevard or whatever right. but the narration is happening right this second the, I constantly wanted a present tense feeling present tense present tense never want the, the suspense on the audience to let up I never wanted them to think that we're looking back on this in any kind of retrospective way I and and I, I definitely know, and our sound designer, uh, Bart Fassbender, is a brilliant guy, and he worked very hard to differentiate the narration from uh, from Dax's dialogue. Mm-hmm. But I know, like, um, pretty much everyone has said something similar to what you said, which is like, I needed a little bit of time to get my ears accustomed to the particular sonic landscape of the yep. story, particularly the aspect of dipping in and out of Dax. Uh, director just monologue and Dak dialogue, uh, but she like once I did, I was fine. And uh, uh, the you know uh, uh, the folks who stuck with us through all the episodes, you know, I can totally tell from their tweets, their Tumblr posts, Facebook posts, whatever. I can totally tell that they're with us and they're sticking to it. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, like so. The funny thing about Steal the Stars is an experience as someone who's been podcasting for a long time, and I listen to more podcasts than I have time for for hours in a day. <laughs> so like too. for me to get sucked into this, it was. Was very interesting. So, uh, me and my wife Sarah, who's an actress who you've known for a while, yeah, yeah. we don't get a lot of TV time anymore. We used to, but because we're both busy working on stuff, day yeah, jobs, yeah. and whatever else, we only kind of sit and watch TV while eating dinner. 
Mm-hmm. It's a solid half hour or an hour or 40 minutes where we can watch something. Right, we always right. pull the laptop up on the table and watch it. But after, I think, the first two episodes where we sat on the couch and listened to of Steal the Stars, every episode after that, every week after, we would sit for dinner and Sarah would go, do you want to listen to Steal the Stars? I was like, yeah. And we would open the laptop and listen to it like we were watching a TV show. Oh, ha. Which, like, just kind of sitting here, eating, yeah. hanging out, and listening. Like, yeah. really actively listening. And I think there's such a benefit to that, especially with a narrative like this, that I got so much out of it. And also, like you said, not letting up the suspense. That's absolutely true. Probably from episode three beyond, every time you think the suspense is going to let up, mm-hmm. Dak pops in without with something else to say or something else happens. Mm-hmm. And I think... It reminds me a lot of like uh, a lot of British TV where they kind of keep you on the hook from episode to episode. This mm-hmm. idea that, like in Doctor Who, famously, oh, sure, yeah. there's always most of the time you don't know what's going on in the episode till about the midpoint, and then it's usually connected to some bigger thing. Mm-hmm. But then they end, and then you have to wait six months to find out what happened. <laughs> and and doing that on an episode to episode basis without it being exhausting, with us still being invested, right, <laughs> is really interesting. Um, uh, I'm curious with with Gideon Media and now uh, spinning off from uh, you know being a part of Gideon Productions and creating the audio dramas and talking about how you had pilots for stuff before this even really took off and there's right. plans to write and that you are writing other things. What do you see as the future for Gideon Media? What other kinds of stories are you looking to do? Can you give us kind of a a preview of the kinds of things you're mm-hmm. working on? Yeah, and I should quickly say I just to do. Um uh, so they uh, they share a name. Um, uh, we they set them up as two different like uh, corporate structures. There's Gideon Productions and there's Gideon Media, which is only uh, technically owned by uh, by me and Sean. Mm-hmm. Though uh, um, Jordana Williams and Nat Cassie are both very close collaborators, very heavily sure. hands on involved in the company. Um, but uh, uh, the, the um, um, it, it, it's 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 an interesting tricky thing because uh, in in order to produce one of these. Um, in order to do something else on the scale of Steel of Stars, um, uh, at least for the time being, we need some kind of a partner. Got it. Uh, uh, whether we do another one with Tor, you know, uh, the, you know, we'll have to see what Tor wants to do with that. Whether we work with uh, partner with another company. Um, uh, uh, now we could, and we're totally considering like there's the possibility of doing smaller projects on our own. Right. Um, something something like Steel Stars when you when you're employing that number of actors, and when you're doing 14 episodes, you need so much recording time sure. with the actors. Um, and uh, and when you have that many locations in the story, so you need to create so many audio environments, um, and and you want to basically produce everything uh, in accordance with union rules, as we did with mm-hmm. Silver Stars, uh, um, when it's like a fully unionized uh, uh, SAG after production, like right. Um, uh, uh, the then. Um, then that's that's an expensive proposition. That's that's uh, you, you need to be able to put together a, a, a big sizable chunk of money to do that, and that was possible. And with partnering with Tor, um, now so w- future projects uh, are going to be sort of developed are going to be um, defined to a certain extent by partnerships, by by our own fundraising, by you know whatever, by you know what what people are looking for out there. Um, and so, and what I'm doing personally is like I'm sort of uh, approaching uh, audio drama development on two. Fronts. Um, there's the homegrown projects that I uh, that I develop as a writer producer with Gideon Media, and mm-hmm. with, in terms of like other writers, Sean and Nat have both 
are both developing pitches and scripts as well. Cool. And we're also in conversation with some other writers uh, uh, about, um, you know, uh, developing pitches, developing scripts as well, because, uh, you know, um, eventually the dream is to have a you know kind of a perpetual motion machine up and running right. where, you know, you've got one script that's being written, one script that's being cast, one script that's in pre-production, one script that's being recorded. Yeah. That's probably going to take you know a bit of time to get to, to get to a point like that sure uh but um uh the the uh so for the time being obviously things will have to happen a bit a bit slower than that but so the, I, there is stuff that i'm doing on, on on that front and then i'm also working as a hired writer mm-hmm. for other companies that want audio dramas sure which unfortunately i can't go into specifics because i'm in contract negotiations sure, of course. Yeah, yeah. I, um, uh, or in early talks with certain companies but um, I'm hoping I'll have some stuff that I can announce, you know, uh, you know, at least shortly after the new year. But like, there's projects that I'll be writing for uh, uh, for other companies as well. And that's also very beneficial. Number one, in that it, I get some money and it keeps a roof over my head. Sure, of course. Uh, but number two, in that um, I, I get to work with a range of artists in this field, and I, I learn from everybody I work with. I learn absolute gallons of stuff from John Dryden about uh, radio drama. Sure. All my first draft scripts for Life After were covered with notes with John going, this simply will not work in the audio medium. Right. Sure, because <laughs> like, you were writing from the perspective of physical space. Yeah, I was just like, oh, you know, I was writing plays with sound effects in them. Like, <laughs> you got to do this, you got to do that, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and a lot of those lessons, you can really see them reflected in Steal the Stars. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I learned a lot from, from you know, uh, from, uh, uh, you know, working with a lot of different people because I had a very peculiar entry into into podcasting. I've had a conversation, like a slightly disheartening conversation with a number of people uh, uh, that, that always makes me feel bad every time where people say to me, like young young people, people starting out in podcasting, they'll say to me, can you give me some advice on starting out in podcasting? And I never can because my entry into podcasting was so weird. Right. I was hired to write two podcasts by uh, GE and Panoply. No one is hired to write. And I may never be again. Who knows if <laughs> This is a bubble that will keep expanding if it'll burst or whatever. Right. Like, like, uh, um, yeah, how do you give advice on a situation that you have no context for? Like, everybody who's saying, how do I start out? These are people who are saying, what what they need to know, what they need to talk to, is somebody who learned which mics to go out and buy, right? Who you know figured out what kind of room to be in, who who started from the who started from scratch. You know, um, I've been in contact uh, online with a few other people who run podcasts. I've, I've talked a fair bit to uh, a woman named Lauren Shippen, who mm-hmm. is the writer director of an audio drama podcast called The Bright Sessions, which has become very successful. It's uh, I think it's on its uh, uh, third or fourth season now. Mm-hmm. It's about a a woman who serves a as a as a therapist, psychotherapist for people with um, supernatural abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, and she just started off with a couple of mics, a couple of actors. The, the the early episodes, there's basically no sound design. It's just two people talking in a room. And she limited them all to the, to the, to the shrinks room sure. and everything like that. And she built that from the ground up until the, the cast got more expansive, the locations got more expansive. Uh, she sort of got, you know, uh, more resources and, you know, developed her own versatility with the writing and the directing. And um, and currently it's 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 starting a new season. I believe it's the fourth season. Mm-hmm. I think I've got that right. Um, uh, which has been highly anticipated by huge numbers of fans. Uh, she, there's fan art. There's all this stuff. And, and she currently has a. T- it's being developed for television as well. Right. She built that from the ground up. She built that from a couple of mics. She built right. that from you know her house uh, and her friends and, and into this kind of extraordinary success. I'm not saying go talk to Lauren Shipman. It's not for me to say. <laughs> 
<laughs> to put some person out there as a person you should ask for advice. Uh, I, I don't, you know, Lauren's got, I'm sure, plenty of things she's got to do with her time. But, uh, but people starting out, they really need to talk to people who have done that. Right. Not... What I did was super weird. I came at it sideways. I came at it doing one specific job. Like, no one starts out with podcasting and does one job. Right. I just wrote and didn't do any of the other things. <laughs> because GE just had bottomless gallons of money to throw at, at, at developing the message in life after. Right. Those were incredibly expensive shows and GE didn't even notice the money. Cause right. So, so that's a weird, that's a weird way to start out. And as a result of that, because I've worked with three different shows that had a certain amount of funding uh, and lots of uh, and partners and lots of staff involved in, I haven't learned the basics. Right. I, I don't know. I have. I, you put me in a store to buy a microphone for a podcast. I won't know what to do. <laughs> One of the very first decisions any podcaster has to make, and I don't know anything about it. So there's this thing where, like, I would love to tell young people starting out. The way I can do as a playwright, I would love to tell young people starting out, here's the basics, right. but I don't know what they are. And it's left me in this kind of helpless state. At a certain point, I might have to retrench and kind of go back to the beginning and learn the basics Yeah, uh, uh, because I just never did. Um, one one other thing I wanted to ask before we wrap up sure. um, is... As someone who knows you, I've had quite a bit of fun listening to the bumps you guys recorded for the podcast. <laughs> my fa- my favorite thing about it, and I have to wonder if there are any bloopers. I've got to imagine, but just when it's you and Jordana, or you mm. and Sean, or Sean and Jordana coming into this, hey, how's this thing going? And like recording these bumps, what was the mindset when sitting down to record them? Mm. Was it just did you guys have fun with it? Did you mm-hmm. guys kind of take it really seriously? Like, how did those bumps get recorded? Because to me, it it, it seems almost hyper um, acted because mm-hmm. I know you guys so well. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's a mix of both of of the what you said is like. Um, uh, I'll say real quick in terms of bloopers. We do hope at some point we'll be able to uh, put together a blooper reel and, of, and of all the bumps. That. Yeah. Excellent. We're we'll to see how that goes. But just in terms of that, like I, in, I knew in the back of my head we were going to have to do ads for this. I didn't have to do ads for uh, the message in life after because those essentially were ads. They were branded right. content for uh, for GE. Uh, uh, with this one, I sort of knew in the back of my head we were going to have to do it. And I was like, okay, that's just a little silly thing. We'll we'll get done after we after we finish all the serious work. I was totally wrong about that. The ads are actually quite serious where because like that's what that's who pays the bills sure that's where that's where the money comes from to be able to do this and in a certain when we started getting you know uh mid-roll the company that, that contracts the ads that passes along the yeah. information to us uh you know the one sheets with the information about the product or service uh the 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 wording that is required there's always right. some wording is like you have to say and then there's just some other information where they say you know make sure you get this idea across but you can say it in your own language and finding that balance of um of you know um seeming fun and enjoyable mm-hmm. but also making sure that we got the right information out and that we structured it in the right way to, that the client's messaging was gotten across there that actually ended up being very meticulous work <laughs> every single time a bit Sean was like oh we got ads can you swing by my house and we'll record them I'm always like oh you know I say to my wife you know I'm gonna run over I'm sure it'll be half an hour and she, she knows better by now it <laughs> ends up being like an hour and a half long to record two 60 second ads because we do a lot of takes uh, and we really kind of sweat over getting the exact right structure right. for it. We need it to sound like effortless banter, but that effortless banter needs to pack in certain a certain amount of information in a certain order. Yeah. So uh, getting that down has been um, 
very, very tricky, very, very difficult. Uh, and also, we want people to not skip the ads. Right, again, you want them to listen. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So we want to make the ads pleasurable to listen to. And it's part of like the hope that, for the, that Gideon Media will have a long-running um, life and a long-running interaction with our audience. If we're going to be making a lot of mini-series and we're not going to be able to build audience loyalty through characters re- recurring again and again over years, which is how most people do it, then we need to build brand loyalty in another way. We, we need our listeners to be able to look forward to hearing from us. Right. We need to be able, like, when the, um, when there's a break in the plot that you were enjoying listening to, which automatically creates resentment, you know, like, I was I was enjoying listening to that story. You're interrupting it. Uh, we need them to kind of like, they. we need them to kind of like Sean. We need them to kind of <laughs> like Jordana. We need them to kind of like Nat. We need them to kind of like me. We need to, sure. when we come on and go, oh, that's my buddy, Nat Cassidy, <laughs> who tells the funny jokes. Like, I, I won't skip past this on my thing. Right. I, I know a shudder went through the podcast industry when there was like this announcement that I, I think iTunes was going to start releasing like really detailed info yeah. not, not just like downloads but they yeah. were also going to release info about like what stuff people skipped Yeah, making sure the audience doesn't skip the ads is actually a significant skill in podcasting and um, I and, and that's what I've discovered much to my shock it was a real splash of cold water in my face that when we got to the recording ads it's like oh we have to really do these right we have yeah. to get the right information in the right order we have to sound genial and funny and we have to make it an appealing enough experience that our users don't hit the 10 second 10 second 10 second <laughs> right, or exactly. whatever it is uh, because apparently that could be measured <laughs> apparently advertisers <laughs> can find out about that uh, so it, it's actually uh, a part of the process that you have to take very seriously and uh, you know I, I'm still on a very steep learning curve with sure. it um, but we have I'm glad we have gotten some positive feedback in terms that people do like listening yeah. to them um, I think hopefully we'll get the opportunity over the years to really hone that down to a science. Sure. Um, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, Mac. Yeah, Thank you so great. much for coming on the show. Um, where is the best place for people to find you on the internet and follow the things that you are working on? Uh, okay, well, there's uh, my needs-to-be-updated website, macrogers.org. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you, you can probably get the most current information on Twitter at Mac Writes, M-A-C-W-R-I-T-E-S. Uh, I keep a pretty sort of current running commentary on there. Um, uh, uh, Gideon-media.com is the website for Gideon Media. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, where you'll see uh, updates about stuff that we're uh, working on on there. Uh, and then projects I do for other companies, I'll be announcing those on Twitter and on my website, uh, I hope very soon. Excellent. Yeah. Um, if you enjoy snarky banter on the current political climate as well, I'd follow Mac as well. Because oh. <laughs> he has plenty to say about things other than the stuff he's working on I as well. I do a fair bit of that, yes. Um, Mac, this has been a pleasure. I've been a fan of your stuff for a while. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me on. This has been a joy, yeah. Um, the last thing I'll ask you to do is we have a saying on this and my other podcast, which is music is life and life is good. Hmm. Can you say our catchphrase and sign us off, please? Yes. Music is life and life is good. Thank Thank you guys so much for listening to Autograph. If you enjoyed these interviews, please subscribe to this and the Crash Chords podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to post in the comment area below each post. And keep the discussion going, because remember, music is life, and life is good.